Hello everyone, uh, my name is Julie Stewart and I organize webinars for the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. I am so happy for you to join us this afternoon with our guest speaker, Tara Ross. Here at the center, our mission is to prepare women for effective leadership and to promote leading conservative women. Our materials, programs, and initiatives support ideas and efforts that are pro-America, pro-family, and support free enterprise. We encourage our supporters and students to be active ambassadors of conservative philosophy in their schools, workplaces, and communities. If you are interested in learning more about the Center for Conservative Women, I invite you to visit our website, cblwomen.org, and follow us on all our social media platforms. We thank you for joining us today as we host Tara Ross. Tara Ross is nationally recognized for expertise on the Electoral College. She is the author of Why We Need the Electoral College, published in 2019, as well as multiple other books on the Electoral College and American history. Her Prager University video, Do You Understand the Electoral College, is Prager's most viewed video ever with more than 60 million views. Tara often appears as a guest on talk shows nationwide, and she regularly addresses civic, university, and legal audiences. She's contributed to many law reviews and prominent national newspapers. Tara is a retired lawyer and a former editor-in-chief of the Texas Review of Law and Politics. She obtained her BA from Rice University and her JD from the University of Texas School of Law. She resides in Dallas with her husband and children. Today, Tara will explain the history and importance of the Electoral College. This valuable part of our governing document has been under attack from those on the left for many years now. She will focus on the reasons for this institution, how it promotes political stability, and how it is nonpartisan. Please join me in welcoming Tara Ross. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to have an opportunity to speak about the Electoral College, one of my favorite subjects for a few minutes. And then I'm really looking forward to the questions that everybody has after that, because I really wanna know what's on everybody's mind. So I'm gonna start with the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that we have a system that um, some Democrats are saying is biased against them. And they're saying that because of the results of the 2000 and the 2016 election, in which, of course, in both instances, a Democrat won the, the national popular vote and lost the Electoral College. And so in both instances, the Republican uh, went to the White House anyway. So I just I know this perception is out there and I want to encourage everybody to remember that this is not true. The system is not biased against one political party or another. And all you really have to do is to look at, at history, the history of states' votings to see how, uh, how erroneous this idea is. You can look at something like the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was winning California and New York and Texas all at the same time and winning huge, massive landslides. And it seemed like nobody would ever be able to breach the red wall, you know, so to speak. But of course, not that long later, Bill Clinton came along and he switched a whole bunch of states that had seemed just, you know, like they were just going to stay red for forever. And they didn't. And of course, it, it reached such a point that by 2016, we were talking about Hillary Clinton and her blue wall that nobody else would ever be able to trump, no pun intended, <laughs> ever again. And so, you know, look, this is the history of our, of our vote. Um, I'm going to spend a little time talking about what exactly the Electoral College is, how it works, what I think the benefits are um, to us today in modern times, um, why it was created, and then uh, I'll I'll be happy to take questions after that. So I'll, just so everybody's on the same page, we have an electoral college that works in two parts. 
So the first phase of the election is the part that gets all of the attention. It, it occurs on election day in November. This year it'll be on November 3rd. And it looks like we are all out there voting for a presidential candidate. Well, you're not actually voting for a presidential candidate. You are voting for a slate of presidential electors. There are 51 completely separate, purely democratic elections conducted in this country every election day. I can count the number of states. There are 50 states plus DC, it says 51. Everybody has their own election. And the way to think of these elections is they are, they are simple statewide elections. Just like you vote for governor, just like you vote for attorney general, just like you vote for any other statewide office, you are voting for the statewide office of presidential elector. Now, these electors, um, I'm in Texas, so I'll just use that as an example. In Texas, we have 38 electors. So I, as a Texas voter, will go and cast my ballot for either 38 Republicans that are going to go vote for Donald Trump or 38 Democrats who are going to go vote for Joe Biden. 38 for any of the third party candidates or writing candidates all have to have their own set of 38 people. And I just think this is really important to know that these are different individuals, you're literally electing them to office uh, to, and, and they want to do what they have been asked to do because there's been a lot of concern about faithless electors in recent years. Historically speaking, that is really rare because of the way that these individuals are elected. They, they want to do what they've been asked to do. And that's why in 2016, when so many people were trying to switch the way that Donald Trump electors were voting, they were remarkably unsuccessful because those were Republicans who had pounded the pavement, given money, made phone calls. They were grassroots Republicans who wanted to do what they'd been asked to do. So on election day, we go, all of us in our respective states, we cast ballots in these statewide elections for presidential elector. And hopefully at the end of the day, <laughs> we will know, I have a pretty good idea of who's won in all of, all of our states. Um, there are 538 electors elected on election day. And there, it would take a total of 270 of these to win the presidency. These electors that are elected, they all go to the second phase of the election in December. Now, this is what the Constitution looks for, looks at to determine who our president is. So as I said, these 538 electors go, they cast ballots, 270 of them can, can of course, elect somebody to be president. If, if nobody is elected in that election, there is a backup procedure in the House, but it has not been used since 1824. So, but this is 2020, so who knows, maybe we'll do it again, just because that's the right way to round up 2020, right? But it's highly unlikely, hasn't really historically happened that often. So the reason that the founders created this complicated system that just took me several minutes to lay out, I mean, wouldn't it have been easier if they had just said one person, one vote and gone the merry way, right? But the reason that they did this is because they understood um, or, or remembered maybe many things that we have forgotten, okay? They lived at a unique moment in time. They had just fought this revolution for self-governance, for the right to have a seat at the table, no taxation without representation, right? That was their rallying cry early on. They did not believe that it was right to be governed by people when they had no say in that government. So they wanted to be self-governing, that this was important to them. They had lost fathers, sons, mothers, daughters for this right to be free and self-governing. But they remembered something that we have forgotten. And what they remembered is that even if they had been given a seat at the table in Parliament in, the, in Britain, they would have been outvoted time and time again because they would have been a minority in that body. They still would have been tyrannized. 
So they had a difficult task before them when they were creating the constitution. How can you create a constitution that is self-governing, that lets the people be in charge of themselves, but also recognizes that sometimes you gotta, you gotta put up roadblocks to stop unreasonable majorities, fair majorities. The, um, the modern day example, of course, you may have heard is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. It's <laughs> not exactly a just system. It might be fair in the sense that it's one person, one vote, but the sheep does not care that he got to vote because he's being eaten for dinner. So this is, you know, this is the dynamic that the founders are trying to avoid in general as they created their constitution. It's why they gave us separation of powers, checks and balances, uh, presidential vetoes, supermajority requirements to amend the constitution, and they gave us an electoral college. And it's so that we can balance all of these competing interests as best as we can. So some people today think, you know, well, that all sounds pretty, <laughs> but, but what does this do for us today? I mean, does it really work? What are the benefits? And so I would just note a couple of benefits that we have for our electoral college still today. Um, one of the most important ones is that it encourages us to build coalitions and to work together. A candidate cannot win unless he gets states from all across the country, from different regions, different subcultures. He has to have a variety of support or else he, won't, he will not be able to win the simultaneous multiple state victories that he needs to earn the White House. And so historically speaking, this is what has happened. And, and, and that is the most productive strategy for a presidential candidate when they are trying to win the White House. Now, some of you will are looking at me and thinking, well, again, <laughs> that sounds pretty, but we know it's all about the swing states. I'm going to dispute that. And the reason I dispute that is because, well, first of all, the math is simple. You cannot earn the White House if you don't have some combination of safe and swing states. But also, if you look to the history of states voting, what you see is that this, the identity of safe and swing states is changing all the time. You know, I mean, right now people are talking about maybe Texas going purple. There was a, there was a time a couple years ago where people were talking about the the quote unquote new safe swing or sorry new safe state no swing state of Virginia. See, it mixes up all the time, and so I don't even know. You can't. It's it goes back and forth. You know, West Virginia before the 2000 election was very safely blue. After the 2000 election was is pretty safe red now. These things change, and it's just it, I see it more as a pendulum swinging back and forth. And what I would say about safe states is. They are simply states that have made up their minds early in the process. If California is safe blue right now, it's because it's pretty happy with the four years of, or it's happy with the four years of what Democrats have done in the past four years. Um, they're not in charge of the White House, but they're happy with what Democrats have done. And so they are, they are gonna vote blue. Texas, you know, is on the flip side. If it's a safe red state right now, it's because it's pretty happy with the way things have been going for four years, or at least they really dislike the alternative. And so, you know, this is, this is how it goes. Anytime a state becomes discontent, it, it changes its mind and it makes itself known pretty quickly. And historically speaking, this is what has happened. Um, so the other benefit that I will say real quick about the Electoral College is that it does help us to prevent fraud and it helps, um, it helps that to go smoother. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you there's no such thing as cheating and that people are perfect and you can stop it all together because you can't but you can make it as hard as possible and the, and what the electoral college does for us is it separates it into 51 different elections which means that if you're going to steal an election you have to be able to have you need a couple of things all coming together all at the same time 
One is you need the national election to be close, close enough that stealing one or two states will make a difference. Two, you need the states with the right number of electoral votes to also be close so that stealing them will do it. And then third of all, you need to be able to predict that outcome in advance so that you can, you can go steal them before the election's over. So this all, you know, in some cases, some people think, well, that, might, that sounds kind of easy. But I would note that if, if for some reason you can make a prediction that a state's going to be close, then probably the other side has figured it out too. And that side is, or that state will be closely watched. Um, an example for that might be Ohio in 2004. Everybody thought that would be the state that would make the difference. And as it turned out, that state flipping it one way or another would have made the difference. However, everybody was watching that state. Um, those of us who are lawyers all had friends that were down there on one side or another, watching the polls or being preparing for whatever dispute might arise. And it is just easier when you can tailor it to one area that you're going to watch. And that, that's the area, you know, as opposed to the alternative, which is the national popular vote, in which every precinct, every vote, anything stolen anywhere makes a difference. That is a really hard battle to fight. It is impossible to watch every precinct with equal attention. And it is much, much easier if you can narrow it down to one subset of problems and solve those. Um, I know there's a, a lot of um, worry about this this year, especially with the mail-in ballot issue and some other things that are going on. So what I would say is, you know, <laughs> I mean, look, it could happen. We're not all doomed to this inevitably. It doesn't necessarily have to be this way. It will be that way if the national election is closed and if a couple of states are closed and if swinging those states made the difference. However, at least in that situation, we will have had, had it narrowed down for us to one or two states that we will figure out just like we did Florida in 2000 and then we'll move on to a certain election outcome, which is much, much more than a national popular vote could ever give us where we could just recount endlessly. So I would love to take questions because I would love to know what's on everybody's mind um, and I'm happy to discuss any of that in more detail. Thank you. Thanks. This is a very fascinating topic, obviously very, very relevant, just because so many people are attacking the Electoral College and making so many vast claims of negative, it sounds terrible. So learning about this thing is very interesting um, and helpful for most Americans. Um, what I'd like to know is, can you explain the process that led to the development of the Electoral College? It's based on the little sure. bit I read, it seems like it took the Constitutional Convention a while to develop this concept. Can you just explain how it happened? Sure, absolutely. So the thing about the delegates to the convention is they were students of history, I think, in a way that we don't always fully appreciate because we don't give quite as much attention to history. But they had studied, you know, the Greek and Roman Empire. Like, they knew all of the ins and outs, and they could cite all these specific examples. And so they spent the summer going back and forth on so many different areas and they had so many different ideas about the president, more ideas than I think we all realized. They thought about, well, maybe we should have three presidents. <laughs> maybe we should, you know, have the governors elect the president. Maybe we should, they just, they were full of ideas, more than I can recount here. But they came down to two basic ideas that just, they went back and forth on them. One was legislative selection of the president. So, uh, you know, imagine if Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi were trying to figure out how to, who to elect right now. <laughs> that would be interesting anyway. But they thought about Congress electing the president. The other idea was uh, just a national popular vote, like everybody talks about now. Just everybody cast about, see who wins. So the, the legislative selection ran into trouble because they worried about 
again, with their study of history, they worried about separation of powers and they didn't want one side of the government to have too much power. They didn't want the Congress to be, to dominate the presidency. They wanted the president to be his own person and an energetic executive, they would have said, who could push back and play his own role in the, the system of checks and balances. So legislative selection had its problems. They also worried about um, on, when it came to the national popular vote, that be turned into a divide between small and large states. And the small states were very, very worried. They did not want to be a part of, of that process where they felt like they would just be outvoted time and time again by the majority in the bigger states. And there, was, there were many delegates that said that one of them looked at the room, apparently quite upset, and he said he was from Delaware, and he said, I do not trust you, gentlemen. If you have the power, the abuse of it could not be checked, and you would exercise it to our destruction. And that's how the small states felt about that. So, you know, the, it was kind of unresolved, and then there was a committee at the very end of the Constitutional Convention. We don't totally know what happened behind closed doors because nobody took notes, so that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> However, um, what we do know is that one delegate many years later wrote down that Mr. Madison took a pen and paper and sketched out an idea for the election of the executive. And they came back and they presented it to the full convention. And with just a couple of tweaks, that, that, that's what we adopted. It was basically the Electoral College that he proposed and that's, that's what happened. So, you know, and then when, he came, when they came out of the convention, the delegates seemed pretty happy with it. They, there was not that much debate about it in the state ratification debates or anywhere else because, and it was because people were by and large pretty satisfied and felt like they'd come up with a good system for reflecting the voice of both large and small state voters in such a big diverse country. A big country of 13 states, by the way. <laughs> like, we're even worse. Wow, it does definitely, like, when you see that, why, here's a question. Why do you think so many people act as if our situation is not fair? When in reality, when you explain that argument, it sounds like it's really, it's giving, I mean, because the way electors are assigned, correct me if I'm wrong, is they're assigned based on legislative di districts and how many you have in your state. Is that right? So you have the same number of electors as you have um, people in the House of Representatives plus two United States senators. So it's partly based on population and partly based on just one, uh, one state, one vote principle. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's what they agreed to. It was the same compromise. It reflected the compromise that was made in the composition of Congress, because, of course, before that, they'd been completely unable to proceed. In the Articles of Confederation, they did have representation by one state, one vote. And the small states didn't want to give that up completely. So this was the compromise. What do you think that we've lost since most people don't seem to have a great concept of the Electoral College? And I've seen a lot of, a lot of younger people seem to view it as a bit more negative. What, how do you think that's happening? Is it, is it a lack of education? What is the situation for us not to realize it, it, it's protective qualities like that? I think it's a lack of education. Um, you know, it's interesting, there's silver linings to COVID, right? <laughs> like we, we don't really like a lot of stuff, but there's silver linings. And one of the silver linings is people keep sending me clips or information from what their kids are being taught in online school about the Electoral College. And it's routinely bad. I mean, I, some of it I listened to and I was, it's kind of unbelievable. It's, it's, it's just sad, but they, they will just write it off very quickly as this unfair thing we do or they'll say it's a relic of slavery, or they'll say, you know, it's just because uh, they couldn't travel and they had difficulty communications and it's outdated and we should have gotten rid of it a long time ago. 
without ever presenting the arguments for it. And, you know, the, a fair presentation of the Electoral College would include both the pros and the cons. Yes, I do. I do think that's something I haven't seen. And since you brought that up, I've, I've definitely heard several people use a lot of phrases when they're arguing against it. Like they will say that it's outdated and discriminatory. Um, and so and the, I've heard some people even say that there's, well, there's been so many attempts to change it. So we should just finally change it. Like that's their rationale. But the one that stands out really popularly right now that I'm hearing a lot is people claim it's racist. Can you explain why they would think that or and how it's not? So a couple of thoughts there. One is I would always urge caution against changing something before you've taken time to understand it, right? Understand what its purpose is before you even think about getting rid of it because you might miss something and have a, a whole mess of unintended consequences follow. But as far as it being racist, you know, there are people who want to get rid of the Electoral College. And I know that if I were trying to get rid of the Electoral College, one easy way to do that would be to demonize the system and to attach as many negative adjectives as you possibly can to it. And so this business about it coming from slavery or whatever, this is a relatively new argument. It's not something, it's, and it's not, I mean, in my, it's just not founded in fact, with all due respect to everybody. It's, it's something that is being generated to create discontent, upset, and, you know, anger with the system. The, they, they base their argument on two different things. One is the three-fifths compromise that um, it was debated at the convention. And look, I, I'm not sitting here, I'm not defending the three-fifths compromise. It, it, it is what it is, but two thoughts on it. One is um, it did not come into play when they were talking about the presidential election process. It specifically came into play when they were talking about how to reflect the population in the House of Representatives. And that's what they were talking about. Now, the North, did not want to count slaves at all. And the South wanted slaves to count as a whole person. So who's on, the, I mean, it's not like there was a good side of that argument, right? <laughs> you know, that nobody was really on the right side of the argument. In the end, the, there was a compromise and the compromise was for three-fifths, but the North, what they gave the South to get that was they said, okay, fine, we'll tie taxation to the same number. So you will have fewer representatives in Congress, but you will also have less taxes. And so look, it was just, it's just a bad compromise. It's something, um, nobody's defending it, but that's what it was. And it had to do with the population in the, or, or how the population would be represented in the house. So the reason it comes into play with the electoral college is because later, much later in the convention, when they were discussing the presidential election system, they decided to have the same number of electors as they do house members plus Senate. But that really reflects the compromise between large and small states. And it doesn't have to do with the underlying three-fifths compromise that, um, that they had been talking about earlier in the convention. Now, the second thing that brings slavery in is there is one specific quote from James Madison that is cited, and I can never do it from memory, but it's, it sounds horrible. <laughs> it's a horrible quote, but it's taken out of context. It was one day in July when they were, they were, what they were discussing that day was actually whether the president should be reelectable. Should he be up for reelection? And they were talking about the fact that if you have the legislature selecting the president, and he's up for re-election, like then the legislature has even more control over him. They were talking about separation of powers. I mean, they, it wasn't, it was this off the cuff remark that James Madison made. And he mentioned elect electors soon afterwards. And so that's why they tried to tie it all together. But he wasn't the first to mention electors that day. Somebody else, um, I think it was Rufus King had mentioned them earlier. And, you know, the, and he was not a, an advocate for slavery. He was someone who had worked against slavery in his lifetime. 
So again, when you come to the discussions that are about the presidential election system and you look at those discussions, it is a consistent divide between large and small states. Not slave and not slave, it's a divide between big and small. And by the way, within the big state delegations, there were slave owners and there were people who were against slavery. And within the small state delegations, there were slave owners and there were people who were against slavery. That just literally did not come into play but they try to make it out like it was. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for addressing that. Um, something else we'd like to ask is, there are so many arguments against the Electoral College for various reasons, but it's my understanding that individual states can assign their electors as they choose. So mm -hmm. if there are some states that feel so strongly about this being negative, why haven't they changed their representation to be more fair, if you will, as they would describe it? I mean, they can at any time. I, I think a lot of it goes back to lack of knowledge. I, I'm not sure it ever even occurs to anybody to do it for the most part, but, but they definitely can. I mean, Maine and Nebraska use a different system. They, they allocate their electors by congressional district. So I, I mentioned that you have the same number of electors as you have congressmen plus senators. So each congressional district, whoever wins that district gets one elector and the two electors that represent the senators are awarded in, in an at-large fashion to the winner of the state vote. So Maine and Nebraska do this. It seems to work pretty well for them. I don't think it would work for every state. I think every state's got to make its own decision, but certainly they can. And, and you know, look, there's, there's lots of things that, that could be done. Um, there, there have been states in the past that allocated their electors where they said, look, we're gonna hold an election, but if nobody gets a majority, it reverts back to the state legislature and the state legislature can just kick. And you know, some state legislatures did it directly for a variety of reasons. In 1876, Colorado, uh, their state legislature picked electors because they were running out of money. <laughs> they, didn't, they couldn't afford the, the uh, presidential election. So they just decided, to, and they were running short on time and there was some other stuff going on because they had just become a state. but. I mean, when it came down to it, is every legislature at the end of the day is responsible for making sure that their state's priorities and interests are reflected in the election system. And, and, and that's, that's on the legislatures. But the legislatures need to remember and know that they have this responsibility because it seems like they've forgotten. Yeah, that's definitely really seems to be key. A question we have coming through is, what is the purpose of voting if electors are really the ones casting the actual vote? Like, how do we trust the, they are going to do as we ask? Well, so, okay, so a couple of thoughts there. One is, um, it's really reliable, and I, I don't worry about it at all. In the entire history of states voting, there have been more than 24, is it more than or just under, or right around 24,000 electoral votes cast in, in our nation's history, 24,000. And there have been fewer than 30 indisputably faithless electors in our entire nation's history. And so that is a really good statistic wow. for anybody that's worried about that. And by the way, that includes 2016, where there were more than normal. There just, there just have not been that many. And of those people that I mentioned, none of them ever changed the outcome of an election, um, with the exception of the Democrats who wanted to convince Trump electors to flip. None of them ever wanted... were trying to change the outcome of the election even. They were trying to make a political statement. As an example, in 2000, there was an Al Gore elector who abstained from voting, and she did it because she was protesting the lack of representation in Washington, D.C. She's on record saying, if my vote 
at that time was needed to put Al Gore, who had said I'd vote for Al Gore over the top, of course I would have done it. I was not trying to get George W. Bush, you know, I wasn't trying to change that. I was trying to make a political statement. And the faithless electors routinely are that way. And it's got a lot to do with the way that they are elected. Um, you know, I mentioned that in, in my state, Texas, there are 38 Republicans that are going to go vote if they're elected. There are 38 Democrats, completely separate slate of people, Democrats who are Texans, who could go vote for Texas if, if they are elected, 38 for each of the third parties. And so um, it's, these are people who were elected by our state parties at the state party convention this summer. They want to do what they've been asked to do. They have, they're probably, as I speak, they're probably out there, you know, walking the pavement, visiting with people, making phone calls, trying to raise money, doing whatever that they can do to get their candidate elected. So these are generally people who are quite loyal to their candidate and that's why the system has remained so stable. Wow, wow that's very interesting. I mean, that's a very small percentage. So this person did express, they seemed concerned that there would be, you know, my vote doesn't actually matter, essentially. Um, and so there are a few more questions. Can you just talk about some people argue about gerrymandering and how that they say that that negatively affects the electoral college. Can you talk a little bit about that and does it affect it? Is it a problem we have we should address? Um, gerrymandering doesn't really come into play. I, I hear people say that the only time it would come into play is if you had a system like Maine and Nebraska where you were awarding electors based on congressional district and then yeah I mean that could definitely be a situation. Um, it's one reason why I said while it's worked for Maine and Nebraska they have four and five electors um, I forget which is which, one has four and one has five electors. So they've got a relatively small number of congressional districts. It's pretty hard to gerrymander those states. I think a state like Texas or California or Florida, some of the bigger states with many more congressional districts where the, they already have gerrymandering problems. I, I know in my state, that's it's a pretty big issue sometimes. I mean, where you already have that issue and then you also put the identity of the president on the line with that, you know, that's, that could make things a whole lot worse. But again, it comes down to the state legislators and their balancing of priorities for what's good for the state and what they, they do or don't think is a bigger problem to contend with. I mean, maybe they'll say we'd rather deal with the gerrymandering thing and try to tame that, but, but reflect the greater diversity in our state uh, when it comes to electors, then that's just their call. And, and, I, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to this, if you have a strong opinion on the matter, call your state legislator and let them know. Let them know this is something you expect to get done for you. Yes, that's, that's a very good idea. Um, some people have brought up, there's a few other options um, as opposed to the way we elect presidents. Um, can you talk about some of the systems that do runoff votes and kind of explain what that is and maybe the pros and cons? Um, so you're talking about ranked choice, ranked choice voting? Yeah, like maybe okay. Ranking, okay. ranking. Well, I'm not a big fan of ranked choice voting. I mean, we'll see how that plays out. I guess one thing about having state-by-state state elections as you can watch one state experiment and see what happens, right? <laughs> That's part of the beauty of the system. Part of the good. Um, exactly, exactly. And so my thought about ranked choice voting is that it undermines, at least in presidential elections, it undermines the coalition building incentives that I talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I'll, um, I'll explain that by saying, you know, if we did not have the Electoral College and to some extent, a lot of winner-take-all states, to be honest, but if we would have a much weaker two-party system. And 
that sounds appealing. Some of the people that are watching this are like, oh, yay, <laughs> I don't like the two-party system. But I would encourage you to remember what the alternative to that is. And the alternative to that is a fractured, multi-party state of affairs like you might see in Europe. Um, France has elections on a routine basis where there's six to 10 presidential candidates in an election. And the, vote, the voters become very, very fractured and divided. And there's no coalition building. There's no real incentive for that. In France, you can, you can literally earn your way into a runoff with 19% of the vote, and that's enough. You know? uh -huh. So then the French people end up with a choice between two candidates who got roughly 19% of the vote, so they were rejected by 80% or more of the electorate, and this is the choice that's given to them. And when you have a system like that, extremists, I mean, it's because you have so many parties, extremists can get much fewer votes to succeed. And that's just what it is. Our system is different. Our system, because of the fact that you have to get so many votes across so many states all at the same time, you have to do a better job than that. You have to build coalitions. You have to try to reach out to people that aren't like you or at least find common ground, something that will bring you together. Um, extremists in our system don't do well. So you could look at somebody like George Wallace in 1968, who he thought, well, I'll just get a region to vote for me and then I'll make my way into the contingent election and I'll have a lot of power there because I'll be the, you know, I'll be the broker that decides which way I'm going to throw my weight. He couldn't get it done. I mean, it, in fact, in fact, he failed miserably. I mean, he got some electoral votes, but Nixon ended up running away with it. And it was, you know, it's just nothing happened. I mean, George Wallace didn't succeed. That's it. Now you can c contrast that in our system. Um, I'll give people a glimmer of hope here. It's not like no third party can ever do anything. But like in our system, if you are a large, reasonable third party, you do influence outcomes. And I'll, the example I'll give for that is Ross Perot. Ross Perot, so again, large, reasonable following across states. I mean, there are people all over the country that, that voted for him. He was driven by budgetary concerns. You know, again, just reasonable, large, mainstream uh, concerns that they wanted the parties to pay attention to. Now, Ross Perot did not get a single elector in, um, in 1992. However, he did scare both parties. And both parties were worried that they had lost too many voters to pro. And you will still to this day find political scientists who argue about whether he hurt uh, Bush or Clinton more. You know, who knows? I don't know. But at, when it came time for the congressional elections two years later, both parties were working hard to get those pro voters back into the fold. They both were working to give their own solutions to the budgetary problems that had, had upset the pro voters so much. You know, the Republican Party came out with its contract with America, and that was its solution that it pushed really hard. Democrats were proposing raising taxes to solve the budgetary problems, but both sides felt like they had to do something. And so that third party candidacy, in my opinion, made a big difference, and it was valuable because it, it focused attention on something that a lot of people wanted to, to talk about. So I would view our system, just to recap, as just a really good balance between um, you know, third parties do have influence when they are lar large and reasonable, but when they're extremists, they don't. And that would all change if we had a multi-party system. So to go back, I guess, to the very beginning of your question, I think ranked choice voting is too much like the multi-party system, too much like the fractured kind of state of affairs like you'd see in France. Because when you, when you have those kind of incentives, you think to yourself, well, you know, I can vote for my very favorite person. Even if I don't think they're going to win, I'm still going to make them number one. And then I'll make the number, you know, the status quo person or the incumbent or whoever, there'll be two or three, right? And so extremists don't have, they can get more of a foothold 
in a system like that where people aren't afraid to vote for them and not afraid that they're wasting their vote by um, voting for a third party. Thank you. Um, another question is like something else some other people propose is proportional voting. What What is the argument for that and pros and cons are you aware of that? Mm -hmm. So this is slightly different than congressional district. I, I said the congressional district is one elector per district plus two at large for the state. Um, proportional voting is where you literally say something like 12%, uh, this candidate got 12% of the state, so we're going to figure out how to give them 12% of the electors. Now, the problem with that is, you know, electors are real people. You don't get to divide them up. <laughs> they're just, they're appointed or they're not. So in many situations, depending on how that math works out, you're going to be trying to decide whether to round up or whether to round down. And do you go out, how many decimal places do you go out? <laughs> you know, what's fair, what's not fair? Every state's going to make its own decision. And what could, look, if it's just a state or two, probably it wouldn't be that big a deal because elections aren't normally decided by an elector or two. But if everybody were doing it or most people were doing it, you could have up to 50 elect electors that you're fighting over every single year because the candidates think to themselves, well, if I can get 200 more votes there, they're going to round up instead of down and I get my elector, you know, or whatever it is. So I do think there's problems with that proportional method. But um, but again, I mean, look, if somebody wants to go experiment with it, they will. That's the beauty of the, the American states. Exactly. Also, do you think that um, it used to be that the, uh, it was stated the United States are, and now it is the United States is, as far as the way people view the states, it used to be a little bit separated, a little bit more of a distance between the federal government and the concepts there. Do you think that has impacted the way people view their electoral college? Oh, sure. I mean, so in, in my book, the one you held up, the whole last three chapters are about the states and like the state's roles and responsibilities in the system. And I think we have definitely lost sight of that. The change in mindset has changed so much. I mean, in the 1700s, Thomas Jefferson said, he wrote a friend, I miss my country. He meant Virginia. <laughs> he was in Philadelphia, he meant Virginia. But that was the mindset back then, right? Like, this is my state, this is my first loyalty is to my state. You know, they, they were loyal to America, obviously, but. It was all very state-driven. You really expected the important laws, the important decisions to be made at the state level, not at the national level. And we have completely reversed that to such an astounding degree. And I mean, by the way, no wonder we're fighting all the time because we all have to come up with a one-size-fits-all solution for, you know, name your issue. And California and Texas, do they, or Massachusetts or Georgia or Mississippi, you name a state, why do they all have to agree? It doesn't matter. You know, who cares if they have the same environmental solution? Who cares if they think the same thing about, you know, again, I'm not, name your issue. And so it's, it's created, I think, a lot of unnecessary division and anger and upset. Um, it's not how our system was created. It's certainly not how our presidential election was created. And again, in the presidential election system, there was really an expectation that states would balance each other out. There was, I mean, this, we have just changed it so much. I mean, right now we've got a commission on presidential debates and everybody's fighting about it. <laughs> but it's a nationalized entity that has taken on a lot of, uh, just a big role in the process. And then we have national political parties. We have a mainstream media. We have national polling agencies who, by the way, poll things nationally a lot as if that number means anything, because it doesn't, you know, and it's, it's just all become so centralized. And that's never what it was meant to be. It was always meant to be 
states reflecting their own issues, their own priorities, their own expectations in the system. And the, in the early years of our country, over and over again, you could see states making their own decisions. You can name um, like 1836, Virginia could not stand the vice presidential candidate. <laughs> they just not like him at all. They, they actually marched off the delegation or the convention floor, the Democratic convention floor, and they said, we have gone as far as we can in supporting Martin Van Buren. <laughs> we will not go another step further. And so they put Martin Van Buren on their ticket, and then they put somebody completely different for vice president because they could not stand the national nominee. They just didn't want to. <laughs> and so, you know, I think, and, and, and nobody thought anything of it. You know, in the very first presidential election, New York could not get its act together at all. They could not agree how to allocate their electors, period, end of story. They lost their votes. That's it. They lost their votes because no other state said to themselves, well, we're going to fix this. There was no national government that said, yeah, well, we'll force. I mean, nothing. There's just New York was in charge of itself. New York failed to get its act together. New York did not vote that year. And they never made that mistake again. <laughs> you know, so it's just a quite different mindset that existed in the beginning as versus now. And I, you know, I hear people say, let's get rid of the electoral college, let's get a national popular vote. But I kind of think, we have strayed so far already from where we started in this decentralized, every state, you know, being a check on the other state and reflecting its own priorities. And we have strayed so far from that already. Are we surprised that, why are we surprised that we're angry and at each other's throats? And why do we think that the answer is to stray even further away from what the founders gave us? I would say we should be going back to where we were. That's, that is an excellent idea. And that brings me to the question someone has asked here, um, does eliminating the electoral college undermine our constitution? And how, how would that process look if someone wanted to actually do that? So if you, want the, if you wanted to eliminate the electoral college, the correct way to go about that is to, um, Congress would need to pass a, a resolution or whatever proposing it to the states. And um, a supermajority is required to get it out of Congress in both houses, both the Senate and the House required to get a supermajority, chip two thirds. And so they would send it to the states and then another supermajority of three quarters of the states would be needed to ratify that constitutional amendment. That is the correct way to get rid of the Electoral College. Now I say, the, I say all of that because there is another movement afoot <laughs> that is trying to do it a different way. And what they are trying to do, it's called the National Popular Vote Movement. And they are trying to eliminate the Electoral College they would say, they would say they're not, but they, they basically are. <laughs> they, they want to have a contract among states. So instead of three quarters of the states passing a constitutional amendment, they want a simple contract among a handful of states. And the contract says, we agree to give our electors to the winner of the national popular vote. And the contract goes into effect when states holding 270 electors have all signed on to it. So right now, this contract has 15 states plus DC all aboard. They have 196 electors among them. So they just need 74 more electors. It's clearly not gonna happen this year, it's too late, but, but they are trying for 2024. And so that's their plan. I mean, the, and they would effectively get rid of the electoral college would exist, but only on paper. In practice, the states that assign the contract would be dictating that we have changed to this national popular vote scheme that was rejected at the Constitutional Convention. So I'm immediately a lot of questions, but is that even legal? Like, is that? So there will immediately be a lawsuit. You know, you can't file a lawsuit yet because nobody has standing really. It's just, they may never get there, right? So why would you fight that lawsuit? But 
Um, if they get to 270 electors, then there will definitely be a lawsuit and they will go, they will end up fighting it out of the Supreme Court, I'm sure. And, you know, the argument for the argument, there's a couple arguments. One is that you can't have an interstate compact without congressional approval. That would be one side of the legal argument that would be made. Another side would be, um, look, you know, states have great discretion in how they allocate their electors, but they don't have so much discretion that they can violate another portion of the constitution in the process. You know, if a state were to say to itself, well, we're gonna allocate our presidential elections in accordance with the outcome of an election held within our state, but women don't get to vote. <laughs> you can't do that because of the 19th amendment, right? So in the same way, I would argue this contract is illegal because it violates article five and the state can't do that, but it will get fought out in court and we'll find out what happens. Well, it, it sounds like almost the states that have signed on, I'm not sure which states there are, but it sounds as if they are trying to circumvent the Constitution, absolutely, but also they don't want to give up any potential power they have being a part of the Electoral College, so they're not going to do that until like everyone can agree that we're going to drop it. Is that kind of what it seems like? Yeah, ex I mean, exactly. So, and it's, and it, that's a good point because they're saying, well, the reason that we can do this is because the Constitution gives us power to allocate our electors however we want to. And this is what this is what we want to do. This is what's good for our state or something. But of course, they're giving themselves away, right? Because if they really thought, like California has signed this, if California really thought it is in California's best interest to give its 55 electors to the winner of the national popular vote, no matter who that is, well, then why do they need a contract? Why wouldn't they just do that right now today and just take the risk, right, that Trump's going to take all their all of their votes or something. But they don't think it's in California's best interest to give their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, unless everybody else does too. And that's because their real goal is to change the presidential election system, not to reflect the best interest of California's voters in that election. Wow, this, this is a very deep issue. There's, that brings us up to someone else's asking, given all of this information, how can the average American promote the Electoral College and support its place in our Constitution? Like, how do we bring this to the forefront of, no, we really want to keep this. This is very good. Mm -hmm. Well, so if any of your viewers are out there in Colorado right now, then what you need to know is that this is on your ballot. Um, the Colorado legislature signed or approved this last year, and Colorado voters got enough um, signatures for a, on a petition to get this put on the ballot and it's on your ballot on November 3rd. And the, the way you need to vote, I forget which, there's a proposition number that I've completely forgotten, but I'm sure you can read it and find, figure it out. But the answer is no. If you want to protect the Electoral College, you need to vote no on that proposition. You need to get your friends and neighbors to go vote no. A vote, for, a vote no protects the Electoral College. So that's in Colorado. Um, you know, if there are other states where it's possible to get an initiative, of course, you could look into that. Um, the states that have approved, I'm not gonna be able to do them all off the top of my head, but it's, it's states like, they're mostly blue states, unfortunately. And I just, I say unfortunately, because um, there's a perception that the Electoral College is, is partisan, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, but, and I don't think that's true at all, but there's a perception. And so there are largely blue states that have signed on to this. And to the degree that you can get your state legislature to reverse that, that's a good thing. If you live in a state that has not yet adopted this, then call your state legislator. This is going to get proposed to them at some point in the spring of 2021, because National Popular Vote proposes it every year in most of the states. 
So call your state legislator and say, I don't want this, you know, and I am, this is not good for us and not good for our state, not good for our country. Um, support the Electoral College by refusing to adopt vote compact. Um, and, you know, I mean, other than that, you know, it depends how brave you are sharing political stuff on your social media, I guess, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But just there are easy ways to spread the word. You know, I have, I participated in a PragerU video uh, several years ago, but it's, um, you can easily find it online and share it. And it, I mention it mostly because it is five minutes, it's not hard to watch, it's quick and it's easy. And I, but I hope it's a just relatively clear, straightforward explanation of why this is important to our country. Yeah, I think another way would be just to read, to get and read her book and maybe share it with people who are readers just to promote the concept and the reasons why it has actually been established. Because I think that so many people fail to realize that the history surrounding the Constitution, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, many people don't even know, you know, the Articles of Confederation and the failures that actually led to the Constitution. Um, I have a kid's book too, if that helps, because it's much, much shorter <laughs> and easier. But um, there's a kid's book called, uh, called We Elect a President. Um, some people have taken that book and donated it to school libraries and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's another option to help the younger generation. Well, that's a really good idea. An excellent Christmas gift, even though it's a little early. Um, so there's another thing that someone has brought up here. Many people potentially, do you think people argue against the Electoral College because they don't even conceptualize America as in a democratic republic and they think that we're a democracy and yet we're not living up to our ideals? Do you think that's part of the problem? Yeah, I think that probably is part of the problem. And, and that's, that's a, I mean, I guess that goes back to education again, though, right? I mean, our politicians and elected officials are always talking about spreading democracy around the world, or, you know, you hear the word a lot, but it's, it's not who we are. We do have democratic aspects to our country. Obviously, we are self-governing, and that's the heart of democracy. But, but we have Republican, small r, safeguards checks and balances um, on that system. And the purpose of those Republican safeguards is to ensure that it's, look, it's not just simple one person, one vote, no matter what, no matter how abusive that answer is, but there's deliberation and compromise and working together and recognizing that we're a big diverse country. And when Benjamin Franklin left the Constitutional Convention, he famously was asked, what is it? You know, what do we have? A, rep a, a republic or a monarchy? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. So, but, but keeping a republic requires an awful lot of education. This is true. We have someone asking about the potential chaos for this upcoming election, presidential election, about what would it take for the um, congressional leader to take the acting role of president if there's not a definitive answer? What does that situation look like and how would that happen? Um, Okay, so I'm gonna hit chaos in the election and then what happens if there's no answer? I'll do those that order. So, you know, as I mentioned, the states have lots of tools to really prevent this chaos from happening at all. And I, I, I kind of wish more people knew more so that we could have taken more preventative steps earlier because it would have been very easy for a state legislature to have preemptively said something like, look, if, you know, if there's no answer by X date, then the legislature, we know this is part of the law. You know, we're doing it before the election. This is part of the law. We are going to just directly appoint electors to who the, our best guess at the winner, you know, or just something to bring an end to it, right? The state legislatures totally have power to stop a lot of this and they don't have to let us get stuck in this mail-in ballot frenzy for forever. I also, again, go back to 
the, the way that this will happen is if there is a close national election and also several states that are very close. And if those two things don't happen together, and by the way, you know, those close states, there's disputes in there about the mail-in ballots or whatever it is. So if you don't have all of those factors coming together, which we could, you know, it's 2020, but we could, but, uh, and I mean, that's when the trouble comes, but then we will isolate it as we did in 2000 to whichever states it is that we have to deal with. I again hope that state legislatures do their best to intervene and keep things under control because I do not think that this has to devolve. But if it were going to and we still didn't have an answer by January, well then you just, you look to the presidential line of succession um, to see who's going to be the acting president until we figure it out, which by the way is dependent on the identity of the new Congress, not the old Congress. So, you know, maybe that answers part of your viewers' question. I, I so, you know, again, keep this in mind when you're voting for your state rep, when you're voting for your United States Senator, you are voting for someone who, if, you know, if we hit that emergency, which, you know, historically speaking, it's been a long time. But if we were to hit that kind of an emergency situation, these are the people that would be acting on your behalf in a House contingent election or in the Senate contingent election. The House elects the president, the Senate elects the vice president. These are the people who would be acting for you. And so, so look, keep that in mind. It's always something that we should keep in mind. Thank you. Um, so someone has wanted to know, this has been a great webinar. They are like, they think, thank you so much. But they'd like to know, what is your best, like, short argument for the Electoral College if you're just talking to somebody at a cocktail party? How do you make a good case for it in, like, a couple sentences? <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, not, not to be too, like, pre-K, <laughs> but, but honestly, the analogy that I think gets people attention an awful lot is the, is the simple two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner is not fair. And so it's not necessarily, it's not only about giving people a vote, it's about making sure the system is just and making sure that minority groups are not being treated unfairly. And in fact, you know, here's a little, um, just something people don't know. In the, the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of upset about the Electoral College. The civil rights movement leaders, they, they came out in force to argue for keeping the Electoral College. Wow. Had such a better shot under the Electoral College. And some of the speeches that they gave to Congress and some of the editorials that they wrote in newspapers at that time are well worth reading because they gave very articulate defenses of the Electoral College and how, you know, for example, Black Americans, this is in one of the speeches, being 10% of the population, I don't know what they are now, but it's 10% then, at the time of the speech, and he said, look, you know, but for the Electoral College, we would just be 10%, and nobody would pay any attention to us. But because of the Electoral College, we are, you know, we can combine our votes in certain parts of the country, and, you know, so like in a place like New York City, maybe if there's more of a certain minority group there, they can, they can congregate their votes, and you can, and also he talked about, like, coalition building with the people in the city, and so they felt better understood, because they had to work with people in the city, and so their needs were reflected in multiple ways, whether it was working with other people to build coalitions within the city, or whether it was because they could help drive the outcome of New York State's vote, that sort of thing. And he said, look, it, 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 he felt that it magnified their vote and, and gave them a better outcome in the system. So, and, and look, that's, I would say the number one thing that the Electoral College does for us is it creates a situation where we have to, like, reach out to people who are not like ourselves, we have to understand people who maybe have different points of view. We have to figure out how to get as many people as possible under the same umbrella so that we can get as many states voting, you know, or the candidate can for as many as, as they can. 
all at once. And absent some kind of incentive process like that, you can't expect that to happen in the presidential election system. And so that would be, someone else is asking about the dangers of a straight democratic vote. And that would be the dangers overlooking minorities and things like that. Look, I think without the Electoral College, 2016 shows us what would happen. Okay, Hillary Clinton got 20% of her vote from only New York and California. And in those states, she got most of her vote from only the big cities. So our system did not reward that. Um, ironically, I should add, she did that to herself accidentally on purpose. And, and the reason for that is she thought she was about to win the Electoral College and lose the popular vote. So in the closing weeks of the campaign, she deliberately spent extra time, money, resources in places in the country that were already safe, like places like Chicago, where she thought she could drive up a whole bunch of votes because she wanted to win both the popular and the electoral. Of course, what she should have done is she should have remembered the Electoral College encourages coalition building and working together and bringing people together. And she should have spent those resources in the blue wall states that she was taking for granted. And she, she probably would have won because those states were all fairly close, but she didn't do it because she was more intent on racking up individual votes. Wow. So this, so one of the dangers of the strict democratic vote then would just be, you know, overlooking what they call flyover America and the rural America farmers and things that are just a lot less populous. Um, so I think we're almost, we're coming up on our time, but one final question, which I really like to ask everyone who does a webinar for us is, um, aside from your own book, which we also recommend for everyone to definitely get, share, and also look into our children's books as well. Those will probably be very helpful for teaching this in a probably a better way than what you've heard is going on. <laughs> um, but a question I'd love to ask is, what books are you currently reading or what books do you always kind of really just recommend? Like somebody, <laughs> what do you recommend? Because you're like college girls and they're like, they're hey, you, it's a Oh my goodness, I have so many books sitting on my desk in this big stack and I don't even know where to start with that question. I mean, so the truthful answer is I'm reading Harry Potter because <laughs> my kids are reading Harry Potter and so I've got to stay ahead of them <laughs> so I can know what they're reading. I mean, that's just the truthful answer. But but I, look, I like to read David McCullough. I like to read, I've got a stack of, um, I have all sorts of stacks. I don't know, I get, um, usually I end up researching something for my This Day in History moment and I end up finding some like a, you know, a book about code breakers in World War II or something. And so then I go buy it and I add it to my stack. And I don't know, I guess it depends what mood I'm in, what era I'm in, I pick up a different one. It's, it's for, for people who enjoy to read, I, I mean, I have the same problem. My nightstand is <laughs> continually stacked up high and then I have to remove them and like balance how many I'm allowed to keep there because it's just a mess. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> well, we are just so thankful that you came to share your wisdom on the Electoral College. Um, we really appreciate what you're doing for America. This is obviously a really key issue, um, not just in an election year, but this is something that, you know, people can really work on through the in-betweens the in of the presidential elections and spend some time really sharing, sharing the information that we all need to know and probably should have learned in school. Um, so thank you so much and we really appreciate your time. Thank you everyone for joining us and don't forget to check out her book and if you have any questions about the Claire Booth Blue Center for Conservative Women, just check out our website and all our social media, media handles are CBL Women, so just check, check us out and we had put her for book of the month a few months back. So I know some of you have already read it and already been there, but share it with other people now. It's a great thing to do. So thank you so much, Tara. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, have a great afternoon. You too.